Welcome to MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue, and we're coming to you from the campus of Middle Tennessee State University in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Kudzu is all over the Southeast. It's so pervasive that a cartoon strip with Southern characters was named for it. But what is it good for? Is it just a pretty vine to look at or a nuisance when clearing land? Dr. Kevin Downs, an associate professor of agriculture, has co-authored a peer-reviewed article assessing the possible use of kudzu as feedstock for certain species of livestock. The article was published in October 2019 in the journal Agriculture. If you can't use kudzu, maybe your cow can after this. Here are some of the headlines making news at mtsunews.com, the university's news and information website. After another poor quarter, 2019 ended on a down note for Tennessee exporters, according to the latest Global Commerce Trade Report from MTSU's Business and Economic Research Center. The fourth quarter of 2019 saw the state's exports drop by $500 million from the same period in 2018. Tennessee exports suffered a $1.6 billion loss. Burke Associate Director Stephen Livingston said the losses were widespread and that shipments were down across a number of industries, including automobiles and aerospace. And MTSU's next True Blue Preview is scheduled for Saturday, March 21st. The event is the university's signature opportunity for students and parents to learn more about academic programs, student services, and student organizations and meet faculty and staff. Student guides will take visitors on extended tours of the campus. Visitors can also participate in academic and departmental presentations, receive information on financial aid and scholarships, and choose from many different special interest sessions. For MTSU News at any time, go to mtsunews.com. Kevin, welcome. Thank you for Thank being you, with us. Thank you. Do ruminants like cows like kudzu? For the most part, they do. Kudzu is fairly palatable. Why do they like it? I mean, they're vegetarians anyway, right, right. but why do they like it? Well, typically with kudzu, what we see is certain types of ruminant animals, particularly like kudzu, what we classify as what we call browsers. Because we think of a cow. A cow, if you see a cow in a pasture, the cow's head is down eating grass or eating some sort of forage, that's grazing behavior. Mm -hmm. There are other ruminant animals, goats particularly, that they prefer to browse. Deer are browsers as well. There's a number of browsing species. So their head's up and they're eating leaves. They're very selective. They're eating small leaves off of plants and that type of stuff. Typically, as a rule, browsers have a preference for kudzu more than the grazers do, but grazers will also eat kudzu. It's very palatable. So the browsers uh, are those animals who don't have to necessarily bend their head down right. to the ground right. to obtain their food source. Right. If you ever if you ever see a goat, even deer, although we wouldn't see deer necessarily as often doing this um, because they're wild animals, but if you ever see goats, oftentimes goats are they have their front feet up on say a tree or a bush or something, and they're trying to reach as high as they can to to get that one little uh, nutritious leaf of the plant. So they're very, very selective, whereas grazers like cattle, like sheep, usually head down and they just kind of, for the most part, eat whatever they can put their tongue or their lips around and get in their mouth. Well, goats are naturally good climbers, so they should they be very they successful are. at and that. And those relate to each other because... You know, you'll sometimes see some um, breeds of goats 
they will actually, you will see them in trees. They can actually get in trees. And all of that is related to being able to find food because they're very good at browsing. You mean they can climb the trees? They can. Well, some t- uh, climbing would be a, probably a wrong way. So they but can, you said they could get in the trees. They can get in lower limbs. They can kind of jump up and you'll see them. Uh, not at the top of the tree, but yeah. certainly lower limbs. So they do like to climb a lot. And how does it compare with other feeds? Kudzu? Yes. The surprising thing about kudzu, and and we, you know, I grew up in the South, and we never, we take kudzu for granted to a certain extent. We see it. We may not really pay any attention to it. It's everywhere in the summertime. Um, and me, I mean, all these years, I really never paid attention to it until I started. It, it was always intriguing. It was there, and it's a plan, and what a, what about kudzu? Is there anything about it? Is it just a weed? And it is fairly invasive, and we know that. But the thing that's interesting about kudzu is it is highly nutritious. The problem is relative to that is how to how do we get that to the animals or how do we get the animals to kudzu just by the nature of the way it grows and where it grows. Oftentimes we use a standard alfalfa. Everybody hears about alfalfa and alfalfa is very nutritious for livestock species. Kudzu actually exceeds based on the research we've done and what other research have been done with kudzu. Kudzu actually at times can far exceed the nutrient content of alfalfa. So it's highly nutritious, fairly palatable. Mm-hmm. There's stuff still we don't know about kudzu as long as it's been around. There's stuff we still don't know about what we call anti-nutritional factors that potentially could not necessarily, we don't really associate a lot of toxicity with kudzu, but there's certainly what we consider anti-nutritional factors that may make the milk of an animal taste different. Would these anti-nutritional factors inhibit the absorption of valuable nutrients by the animal? There are some. Now, again, it, our knowledge base on those anti-nutritional factors as kudzu is, is fairly limited, but there is some based on us finding these substances in other plant species. There are some that can af- affect digestibility in ruminant species. What nutrients does it provide the animal? Typically in animal feeding, we typically as a standard have protein. You know, if we buy a bag of feed at the feed store for a cow, first thing we look at is protein or a bag of feed for chickens, we look at protein. And so that tends to be the standard, uh, but certainly other nutrients as well are fairly high. But crude protein, what we call crude protein or protein level in kudzu is very, very high relative to other plants. It does vary. And that's some of the research we've done here is, is it certainly varies by season. And that's true of any plant. As the older the plant gets, the less nutritious it is, basically. And so, you know, kudzu that is fairly young, it tends to have fairly high levels of protein, approaching 30%, which in in our world is very, very high for a a plant-based feed. But beyond that, its digestibility, the amount of energy it has in it is fairly high. We've not assessed as much the vitamin mineral content in it, even in later season, because kudzu's growing season is basically spring into early fallish when it starts to cool and frost. Uh, even the later kudzu, and we're doing some work right now with that, even later season kudzu has, it maintains that nutrient content even into the late season. Would it be equally good for beef cattle and dairy cattle? My short answer to that would probably be no. We at least have anecdotal accounts that kudzu fed to or animals allowed to consume kudzu uh, that are lactating animals, so our dairy cows 
or dairy goats. It does impart some sort of an off flavor to the milk. So most likely it would not be something that we would necessarily incorporate into dairy rations or something like that. Beef cattle, we don't consume milk from beef cattle. So we don't worry as much about that. So if I were to make a recommendation, certainly on the beef cattle end would be where I would approach that. And of course, I mentioned the goats. They tend to to be just because of the way they like to consume their food, if you will, and also where we can house goats mm-hmm. and their ability to maybe get into certain areas where kudzu grows that maybe cattle can't. Well, if you're using goat's milk, to make soap or other right. non-digestible products, right. then it wouldn't have any ill effect. There, I would not expect there to be any because we talk we talk a lot about flavor profile, and so obviously you're not eating goat. Most I'm assuming most people are not eating goat milk or goat goat soap, goat milk soap. So mm-hmm. we wouldn't have issues as much there. We'll take a break here. We'll be back in just a moment. This is MTSU on the record. The Tennessee Early Childhood Training Alliance, or TECTA, works to improve the quality of childcare in Tennessee by establishing establishing a statewide training and professional recognition system. Through TECTA, child care providers may be eligible for free orientation training, tuition support for early childhood academic courses, and networking opportunities, as well as other services. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. The American Democracy Project is a nonprofit initiative which strives for greater voter registration and civic participation among young people at MTSU and at campuses nationwide. Through encouragement from professors and peers, young adults are shown the value of being more active citizens in their community, their state, and their nation. ADP seeks to nurture programs that raise the campus community's level of engagement with society. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Dr. Kevin Downs is our guest. He's an associate professor of agriculture. He's the co-author of an article uh, about kudzu and the possible use of it as feedstock for livestock. Uh, Would it be preferable to limit the acreage uh, of kudzu on one's property if one is uh, intending to use it as feed for animals? That's that's a good question. That's, that's, That's the ultimate challenge is, you know, kudzu uh, historically was introduced in the United States intentionally. Uh, we look at it now uh, as an invasive weed, but it was it was introduced intentionally t- as a, a way to control erosion. And what we did not realize at the time is kudzu really likes the United States, particularly the South. And so it has basically taken over. So it, the challenge there with kudzu and use of animals is basically what you just mentioned is, are we able to take, say, an area maybe that we have kudzu on our property and be able to utilize that Mm -hmm. for feeding animals without allowing the spread of kudzu? Because we still look at kudzu, even though it's highly nutritious, we still look at kudzu in a negative light, admittedly so, because it is so invasive. And so the concept uh, today of actually intentionally planting kudzu would be something that would be a little bit far-fetched, I think, today, because it is so, so aggressive and grows so well in the South. It's very drought tolerant and all that. So it's very conducive. So I think the challenge for a producer would be to, if you have kudzu, can we take that kudzu and can you use anim- animals on that kudzu, thereby getting something out of the animal, growth, whatever, but also somewhat controlling the kudzu's growth without potentially maybe killing it unless you want to kill it. And we can certainly use animals uh, as as biological control agents as well for kudzu and other 
invasive plant species. And if you have a piece of property in which you have not only animals, but you are planting crops, you certainly want to keep the kudzu away from right. those plants. Right, right. Because the, the one thing that is a, a challenge with the way kudzu grows, uh, is, and if you're familiar with just driving along a back road somewhere in the south, you'll see kudzus oftentimes in the middle of the summer climbing up hills. It may be totally engulfing a tree. That's somewhat a strategy for kudzu is it's able to climb sort of to reach the light, if you will, has large leaves to be able to receive a lot of that sunlight. But at the same time, it is covering other plants and shading them out and potentially killing them. How would one harvest kudzu? I mean, I, in some instances, I can't see you going in there with a backhoe right. and just cutting the right. whole thing down. Right. And that's a good question. I I, uh, I have thought that same thing. And I have, I have at least thought of this in my mind, and it would be an extreme challenge. If you understand how kudzu grow, it grows, it is much of a vine. But what tends to happen is from season to season, those dead vines, they will die off some, but they tend to create a mat. And on top of those will be the next season. So you're kind of perpetually building this mat. So to be able to get some sort of machinery in to harvest kudzu would be extremely hard and particularly based on where it grows. So it sounds crazy um, to say it, but Honestly, probably hand harvesting of some sort, maybe with hand tools, something like that would be, and obviously that'd be quite labor intensive, but that would be probably the route you'd have to go because of just the nature of the way kudzu grows and where it grows. Uh, but, you know, particularly in in times um, where we might be in drought situations and, you know, maybe the availability of, of forage, typical forage species for grazing are less available because of the drought. Kudzu is very drought tolerant, so there may be a potential advantage there. Can we maybe, even though the labor intensity is there, can we harvest kudzu and feed it to the animals directly and thereby maybe saving a little bit on cost of you know, supplemental feed hay and that kind of stuff? But but again, that's a, that's a significant challenge. I don't know of any um, large-scale livestock producer in the United States that they're uh, that are that are approaching it that way is it a potential probably but it's just a labor dynamics and labor cost of that that's and the vine is so invasive I don't suppose you could just let the cows do all the work because who could eat that much kudzu well that's the two that's the challenge too that if you you can and there's where we balance it there's the balance between the biological control the concept of biological control using an animal is to to basically slowly kill it without using herbicide to slowly kill the plant. So the animal, you're aggressively browsing it or grazing it. And by doing that uh, season after season, those animals are damaging the plant so much it eventually kills them. If that's your objective, then that's great. Great way to do it. We don't have to use herbicides and all that, that, that kind of, those kind of products. If we want to balance it where we're somewhat controlling kudzu, but we don't want to totally kill it because we actually want to use it as a supplemental feed then that tends to be the balancing act there. Can we stock, we call it stocking density, can we stock that area of kudzu where the animal, the number of animals we put on it, there's enough there to, to, to control it, to keep it from becoming extremely invasive, but yet not totally kill it so that we could use it later in the season or maybe next season. What about cost savings? Would it save the farmer money not to have to go down to the co-op and buy more feed? You know, we, we recognize, you know, the limitations of what, how kudzu potentially could be used in the United States. There's not, it's not likely that it's going to 
takeoff where we revolutionize the livestock industry by using kudzu. But that's been somewhat of a focus for us is uh, in other countries where kudzu is also present in high concentrations, yet the availability of other feedstuffs might be much less than we have in the United States. Hmm. Can that genuinely be used as a significant supplement for those individuals, particularly in tropical countries? So that's been somewhat of a focus for us. So certainly the cost savings aspect of that is significant if availability of feed is is very limited in certain countries, then that that's an alternative. Time for another break. We'll be right back. This is MTSU on the record. Women in Science and Engineering, or WISE, helps college women prepare for and become involved in science-related careers. WISE nurtures women's interest in these fascinating and critical fields and provides mentoring and networking opportunities. The group's main goal is to assure women of their importance in all scientific and technical fields and to promote equal opportunity and treatment of women in science. I'm Dr. Judith Iriarte-Gross, WISE advisor. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. The Army ROTC College Program at MTSU prepares students mentally, physically, and emotionally to become leaders and promotes virtues of duty, honor, country. ROTC cadets are involved in all academic disciplines, athletics, and student organizations at MTSU. Full scholarships and tuition assistance are awarded based on merit. All cadets upon graduation will serve their country as second lieutenants either in the Army, Army Reserve, or Army National Guard. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. We're talking about kudzu, everybody's favorite or least favorite southern vine and Asian vine with Dr. Kevin Downs, an associate professor of agriculture who has co-authored a paper on the use of kudzu as feed for some livestock, particularly ruminants. Uh, When the animals eat kudzu, do they need to drink more water to avoid getting constipated or not necessarily? No, no, we don't typically think of constipation in ruminants as an issue, Mm -hmm. typically because of their digestive system. They their digestive system, particularly their stomach with those four chambers, it's there for a purpose of digesting this high-fiber diet. So we don't worry much about that in, in ruminant species at all. So they'd probably just drink the same amount of water as they usually do? They would probably not, actually, depending on what what we're talking about. Because if any time a ruminant is consuming a fresh plant, because there's so much water in that fresh plant, right. it compensates. So the animal would they're, – they're basically consuming water by way of what's in the plant versus the drinking water. Whereas if we feed that animal, say, hay, which is obviously drier, they're going to compensate and they're going to consume more drinking water. You mentioned animals other than cattle in the paper, including chickens. What are the prospects for feeding kudzu to chickens? I'm glad you asked that. Uh, we, uh, that is some, I'm actually, by training, a poultry scientist. Uh, so poultry is actually my area. As a follow-up of some of the work, we've done a little bit of work at EMTSU. The review article was actually a review of what's been done in kudzu, but we've actually done um, several studies now looking at the degradability of kudzu in ruminant species using some of our experimental animals. But we actually have moved over and done now, uh, we'll be doing our second study coming up at the end of this summer, looking at kudzu as an alternative feedstuff for uh, broiler chickens, the meat type bird. Again, like I said before, particularly focused on those tropical areas, this is not something we would do in the United States as far as supplementing commercial poultry diets with kudzu. But in those tropical countries where the availability of the more expensive, say, soybean meal, those protein sources are less available, yet kudzu is quite available. 
looking at can we potentially substitute some of that protein-based feedstuff with kudzu. The birds did not perform, admittedly, as well on kudzu as they did with the typical commercial-type diet, which would be what you'd expect. What we did find, though, which was good, inclusion of kudzu had no detrimental effects on the bird. We did not observe any anti-nutritional qualities affecting the bird. The birds did grow, even though they did not grow as high at a higher rate as, say, our traditional traditionally fed birds, they still grew at a very, very high rate, even supplemented with kudzu. We're following up uh, towards the end of the summer with another study looking at kind of the optimum rate. Our initial study was, can we feed kudzu? Can we supplement kudzu to broilers? And we're going to follow that up and say, okay, let's look at different rates of inclusion and see what the results are. Could people use the study? study coming out in the summer is a jumping off point for perhaps examining kudzu as feed for turkeys, ducks, sure. pheasants, other sure. kinds of birds that people eat. Sure, absolutely. We typically use, you know, the alfalfa as a standard plant-based material because it's been around so long. We know so much about alfalfa. And traditionally, we don't do this anymore in in poultry production, but traditionally, we actually use uh, alfalfa meal was a common feedstuff many, many years ago in poultry diets. So making the jump between, yeah, we're not going to do that now in the United States likely, but this concept of a leaf meal, which is basically what alfalfa is, it's a meal ground up leaves. We're making that jump to kudzu, which if nothing else, has very similar nutrient content to alfalfa, if not exceeding it. The food that we humans consume, <laughs> animals that have eaten kudzu, do we benefit from the nutritive value of the kudzu they have consumed? Uh, I'll give you my, I guess, opinion more than based on any data. There's no data that I know of that would say yes or no based on that. We did look at, uh, in our initial study, we did look at carcass characteristics, and uh, we did not do any sensory evaluation where we actually test the product and see, is there a flavor profile difference? Uh, maybe there is, maybe there's not. For what it's worth, anecdotally, we did consume some of that chicken meat and tasted like chicken. Right, very, very similar. The reason I ask is you're talking about broiler chickens, and of course, people consume venison all the time. Right. How widely is kudzu used as feedstock now, both in the United States and around the world, do you know? I don't know around the world. Um, I would say a, a worldwide, it's probably used much more readily than it is in the United States. There may be a inherent bias to kudzu. Maybe I'm too much of a kudzu advocate. Uh, it is invasive. There's no doubt about it. it. It will destroy a lot of things. There's no doubt about that. But um, what I think we tend to just, we just tend to overlook it. We say, there's this vine, we hate it. It's in our way, and I'm the first one to admit, it can destroy a lot of things, and there's times it needs to be controlled and killed. But if there's a possibility that we can use that, control it, but use it, I I look at it as like, wow, and I do this. This is the weird scientist in me, I guess. I drive by. I'll be driving in the middle of summer, and I see kudzu growing. I'm like, wow, everybody hates that stuff, and I know why. But I'm like, it's, that's loaded with nutrients you could feed to animals. My Always my question is, how do we get the animals to them or to it? Because if you, that's another big challenge. Kudzu doesn't typically like to grow like a grass does, where it grows along the ground in an open pasture. That's not the way it likes to work. And so where it tends to grow, it likes to grow up things. And how 
you balance the way it grows with how we get those animals to it. It could be a logistical challenge. How do we put fence up here mm-hmm. to contain animals? There? It'll just grow on and over the fence. Right, exactly. It's a, so that that's a huge challenge. So that's a it's a if you're if you want to use kudzu, if it's something and and it is something that certainly from the standpoint of goat, I, I look at kudzu in my opinion being the perfect match for goats because they can browse and they can control it. And they can climb. And they can climb. And so there's a good match there. Uh, But I do think, you know, from the standpoint of purely the nutritional content of kudzu, I think we we miss out on it. But I understand the negativity because of the way it grows and what it does. The negativity that's that's developed since the early 1900s uh, against kudzu is a challenge. I think that even from the standpoint of establishing a farm, I almost feel like if if I was the neighbor, mm-hmm. like, what do y'all do? You're you're establishing kudzu. Is this gonna and and could you control it? I mean, that's a challenge. Can could if you establish a kudzu quote unquote kudzu farm, can you contain that on your farm? Yeah, and that's always a challenge too. Kudzu's been used for um, many many years for for human food, kudzu flour, kudzu fiber for you know, ropes and that type stuff. So it's not a, and there's some work even ongoing now with looking at the medicinal properties of kudzu root mm-hmm. and those type of things. I wonder if George Washington Carver ever experimented with kudzu. <laughs> Probably not. And he look. did a good job with peanuts. Yeah, and sweet potatoes. <laughs> yeah. The uh, article is called A Review of Kudzu's Use and Characteristics as Potential Feedstock. It was published in October 2019 in the journal Agriculture. And would you like to give a shout out to your co-author, please? I would. Um, Joseph Galizia, he, uh, I have to give him credit here because he actually is the really the jumping off point. Uh, Joe is actually currently a graduate student at Auburn University studying uh, poultry nutrition. But he came to me a couple years ago as an honor student here at MTSU. And he came to me looking for a project. And I, we sat in the office and I was like, what do you think about kudzu? I've always kind of thought kudzu was kind of interesting. He's like, sure. And so we've jumped off from there. So Joe has been the one that's done most of our kudzu research, not only in ruminant species with our experimental ruminant animals. He's also the one that's done our poultry research so far on kudzu. So he was very involved. He's moved on now beyond that, but it was a good jumping off point for him. So I used to live in Alabama. I guarantee you they have a great deal of kudzu. They have a much more than we do. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Dr. Kevin Downs, thank you for being our guest. Appreciate the invitation. We'll be right back. NTSU's Jewish and Holocaust Studies minor offers undergraduate students a chance to study the culture and religion of the Jewish people and the Holocaust in an interdisciplinary program. Studies include history and culture, theology and philosophy, and the arts and social sciences. Courses tackle vital topics central to local and global awareness, including multiculturalism and the meanings of diversity, religious tolerance, and genocide. For the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. The Tennessee Civil War National Heritage Area is managed by MTSU Center for Historic Preservation. A partnership unit of the National Park Service, the Heritage Area tells the whole story of America's greatest challenge, offering assistance with Civil War and Reconstruction Era programs. Our projects include historic driving tours, museum exhibits, and nominations to the National Register of Historic Places. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Gina Fan has the middle moment. 
MTSU's 28th Annual Invention Convention brought 828 mid-state 4th, 5th, and 6th graders to campus February 27th with 426 different and amazing answers to questions you may have never realized you had. Their inventive games and solutions to make life easier earn them certificates, ribbons, trophies, praise, and advice from one of their own, Gallatin 8th grader Maddox Pritchard, whose now-patented 2016 trophy-winning measuring shovel has earned him national acclaim. In 2016, when I was in the 4th grade at Union Elementary School, I had to make an invention to help make life easier. I knew I needed to find a problem and then make a simple solution. My idea is simple. But it helps people every day. And sometimes the best inventions are just little modifications to already great ideas. Four years ago, I was just like you. Just keep inventing and keep practicing and never give up. That's MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue. Thanks for listening. MTSU on the Record, a news and information program about Middle Tennessee State University, is produced by the university's Marketing and Communications Office, which is solely responsible for its content. Read more about MTSU at our website, mtsunews.com. Podcasts of this program are available at mtsunews.com and on iTunes.